Welcome to the Live at Spur podcast. I'm Brock Winstead. Spur is a member-supported nonprofit that promotes good planning and good government, putting ideas and action together to make a better city and region. One of the ways we do that is by hosting discussions, presentations, and other events with leading planners, designers, and urban thinkers from all over the world. Live at Spur is our way of sharing some of those great events with a wider audience. And we'd love to hear what you think. You can email us at info at spur.org or tweet at spur underscore urbanist. In this Live at Spur podcast, we hear from Judith Roden about the many benefits of building cities that are resilient. On May 7, 2015, Roden visited the Spur Urban Center in San Francisco to discuss her recent book, The Resilience Dividend, and her work with the Rockefeller Foundation to help strengthen cities around the world. Judith Roden is president of the Rockefeller Foundation, one of the world's leading philanthropic organizations. She was previously president of the University of Pennsylvania and provost of Yale University. Since joining the foundation in 2005, Dr. Roden has recalibrated its focus toward equity and resilience, helping people, communities, and institutions prepare for, withstand, and emerge stronger from acute shocks and chronic stresses. In conversation with Dr. Roden is Gabriel Metcalf, the president and CEO of Spur. Gabriel speaks and writes frequently on planning and policy topics and has overseen dramatic growth at Spur since he took the helm in 2005. He serves on numerous boards and commissions, including the America 2050 National Committee and the City Car Share Board of Directors. Here's Gabriel Metcalf in conversation with Judith Roden, author of The Resilience Dividend, on the Live at Spur podcast. I don't know how many of you um, picked up the book out there, but um, The Resilience Dividend. What do you mean by The Resilience Dividend? Why is there a dividend to this? Building resilience is really about three kinds of capacities. The capacity to plan and prepare for any kind of crisis, not just the last crisis to rebound more quickly and effectively as shocks and stresses do occur, and then the ability to adapt and grow. And the argument in the resilience dividend is that at each phase of making this investment, there can be, if you plan properly and if you act properly, multiple wins for a single investment. And that is a very critical thing to demonstrate to convince policymakers who are always asking what are we getting for this investment to convince skeptical citizens who may appropriately ask the same question, why do we build resilience and pay for that against an uncertain future when there are so many certain shorter-term issues that we should be spending money on. And the examples that I give and the work that we do tries to marry all of those together to create that multiple-win scenario. When you think about the pressures you're under, right, as a mayor or as a president with so many immediate problems, making investments that will have uncertain payoff or that will prevent bad things from happening that people didn't even know they were supposed to be worried about, how do you manage to get them to, to care enough to, to spend down political capital or real capital in the here and now? I think if it were 20 or 30 years ago, those who were thinking about that were visionaries. But now, 
crisis has become the new normal. There isn't a week that goes by that somewhere in the world there isn't some kind of significant disruption. We've just seen Nepal, there are violent storms, clearly there are hurricanes. Um, so natural and man-made disasters, but also cyber attacks increasingly become another shock um, that many cities are confronting. Civil unrest, we just saw Baltimore, we've seen Oakland more recently, although less dangerously. And so not only are mayors seeing those acute shocks happening in so many places around the world, but the chronic stresses are also affecting their capacity to govern and the well-being of their citizens. By chronic stresses, I mean poor air quality, drought, crime, inequity. Building resilience is building the capacity that allows you to really respond more effectively to both the slower burning stresses as well as the acute shocks. And I think they see the investment as critical. When you got to the foundation 10 years ago, you organized it to focus on two core areas, um, equity and resilience. What was it in your background or your story that made you show up knowing that's what you needed to do? Um, well, it wasn't quite show up. I think for us, Katrina, was a wake-up call as well. It was early in my presidency. And Katrina wasn't just a failure because the levees broke. Ka Katrina was a social and economic failure and a civic and political failure many, many, many years before the hurricane. It really did show the underbelly of inequity and poverty and, and race, racial segregation still in, in so many communities in New Orleans um, that we see in so many places in the United States. So as we worked with New Orleans to develop the, the uh, Unified New Orleans Plan, we worked with so many of the affected communities with the municipal leaders, with the private sector. And when we talked about building back a more resilient New Orleans and building back capacity, pretty soon in the dialogue, within the first year, was the recognition that they had to deal with social exclusion and economic exclusion, as well as build back the natural and, and physical, the, the, the built environment in a more resilient way. And for us at Rockefeller, that shared learning that it was not only the earthquakes or the floods that were the problem, but if we couldn't also focus on economic resilience and social resilience and community resilience, all of those capacities that are equally important in giving a city, if we stay just in an, in an urban frame, that give the city the capacity to be more resilient. So our entire framing, and we work all over the world, is really about building greater resilience to the shocks and stresses that you can't always prevent while you're increasing your awareness to those that are preventable. At the same time, we're trying to build more inclusive economies. We often cite a quote that I think was from Paul Krugman when he looks at the, the trends in federal spending in this country. The federal government, he says, 
is just a health insurance company with an army. That's, and in the future, even more so. That that's basically the only two things that the federal government has the capacity to do if it involves spending money. And yet, and yet, the federal government sets so much of the context for uh, what the states and the cities and the regions do. How do you think about the resilience work in terms of where it needs to live? At, the well, at what level? I would challenge that assertion. I think in the United States, particularly as the, the view of our federal government has really been that it's gotten less and less functional, even though so many of our resources are lodged there, so much of the innovation and creativity is what we're seeing on the ground in mayors and in some governors um, around the United States. Politico just issued a, a survey they did a few weeks ago um, surveying a broad cross-section of mayors in the U.S., both Republicans and Democrats, and 82% of them said that they no longer feel they can or should rely on the federal government, and so they've got to figure out solutions on their own. We funded the development of the West Coast Infrastructure Exchange when we saw that there wasn't going to be federal legislation that would have a, a national infrastructure bank. And so here along the West Coast, the governors of, of uh, California and Oregon and Washington and the provincial governor of uh, British Columbia are collaborating on how they will finance massive infrastructure projects over the next 10 years. Because if they can go to the capital markets with combined projects where there's similar infrastructure, they can get better rates and they can build more quickly. Now that's a financial innovation. So I think we're seeing, I mean, I would love to have a very functional national government, but I think we're seeing a lot of innovation coming at the local level because of this. We often counsel people, we think of this as getting through the stages of grief, that you need to come to some acceptance that the federal government is not going <laughs> to is not going to be able to come and rescue the cities. And once you come to that acceptance, you're able to, to take action. Well, having said that, let me mention Rebuild by Design, and you're going to have our marvelous um, 10 years of this and, and all of the art that that competition produced and, and brilliant thinking. So that's a place where we saw great work on the part of the federal government. Um, after uh, Superstorm Sandy, when the government authorized what, however many billion um, dollars uh, for the recovery for the New York and New Jersey area, I, I chaired Governor Cuomo's, co-chaired Governor Cuomo's Recovery Commission. And so we issued a report called NYS 2100 in which we took a long-term view of what New York has to do through to the year 2100 all based through a resilience framework. By then, we had developed a, a good deal uh, of expertise and experience working around the world. And HUD came to us and said, what if we do something innovative and we take a billion dollars of the disaster recovery, the community um, block, uh, development block grant money, and instead of just giving it we had an international design competition, and we asked public-private partnerships to come together and really imagine 
um, the kinds of design that would make various parts of New York and New Jersey more resilient. Um, they had 147 teams and picked 10 finalists whose designs you will see. Um, and then six are actually being implemented. The, the additional innovation around that was that it had to have community partnerships. So when we saw those presentations, it was so heartwarming because we had neighborhood people from the Bronx talking about their designs doing the presentation and the architects and planners sort of stood behind them and the engineers kind of glowing at the degree of trust and participation, which was very, very real. So a lot of innovation went on there and kudos to HUD. Um, we then, with HUD, took this same idea to um, another billion dollars was allocated in the Sandy recovery money for the 67 communities around the United States that had uh, federal disasters declared within the last two years. And we ran resilience academies for all of the uh, eligible municipalities or regions uh, that were going to apply. So they will now all be doing their projects through resilience building lens, which is pretty amazing um, because a billion dollars isn't going to go very far, but many of them said, we had 50 some uh, actually come to the various, we ran six regional workshops, um, that they learned such significantly different things. So I'm, I'm a little optimistic about some of the exciting things the federal government's doing, and the Army Corps has become a great partner of ours. Um, and FEMA as well. So we see a lot of mind shifting. Yeah, I mean, we just can't write off the federal government. Right. This, the SPUR board is going uh, next week to New Orleans on its study trip. And one of the really interesting differences uh, between the Bay Area and New Orleans is that um, the Bay Area has tons of money, right? And so as you think about the tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars that are going to have to be spent adapting to sea level rise and climate change. It's pretty reasonable to think about the Bay Area self-funding. And it's not so reasonable to think about Louisiana self-funding. And so we have these, th this, this kind of equity lens on the big mega regional scale of resiliency actually requires the, the federal government to be to become capable of helping in a bigger way. We work all over the world, and we have worked building resilience in some very, very, very poor cities. So, so New Orleans has it's, money. it's not only the big infrastructure projects. It's many other things. So um, in, in Vietnam, a lot of the solution was really natural infrastructure, mangrove replanting. Um, a variety of things in terms of, of uh, taking lakes that were contaminated and building uh, a more redundant water supply system by, by addressing the contamination. Not inexpensive, but relatively inexpensive. None of us will be building the Dutch dike system again, even the richest countries and the richest places. And in fact, the Dutch wouldn't be building it because they have come to the same realization, I think, that we will need to come to in the United States, which is that we can't pipe and pave and pump water anymore. We're going to have to find solutions that are 
sort of embraced in the concept of living with water um, rather than trying to keep it out. It is a different climate. Climate change has had a tremendous impact. We're going to have to figure out structurally what we're trying to mitigate against future climate change, how to really adapt to this in new and, and innovative ways. We did a resiliency speaker series last year, and uh, one of the main speakers criticized us for using the concept of, of resiliency as our, as our organizing framework. And I want to tell you what he said, since you're using it too. <laughs> um, he said, it implies uh, a disruption and then a going back, a return to the original state. And that makes sense with earthquakes and, and bombs and episodic events. But with climate change, it's quite misleading because once you get to one foot, then you get to five feet. And once you get to five feet, then you get to 15 feet of sea level rise. And the, the inexorable one-way direction of the climate change for all intents and purposes means that we need a, di a different paradigm on it. How would you respond to that? So I, I agree that we need a different paradigm, but I believe that resilience is that paradigm. What he defined, what you described as his definition, is stability. It is not resilience. So stability in engineering terms or in psychology is returning to normal, having a stress and then returning to normal. Building resilience is not returning to normal because the elements that made you vulnerable are those that will return your vulnerability. So that's why I began by saying this is about changing. It's adapting and growing if a bad thing happens. But it's also about the kind of planning and preparation in advance of that that both makes you able to rebound more effectively, but also keeps every, it, not every disruption has to become a disaster. So in what you're doing, you actually can prevent some disruptions from becoming a disaster. You may not be able to prevent the disruption, but not everyone has to turn into a disaster. And that is a critical concept in resilience and a critical feature of it. I wish you'd been here. Turning slightly to a new topic, I just thought that we get to ask you a little bit about philanthropy. Um, you, of course, came out of an academic background, but you've been doing this a while. We're having all of these new foundations popping up in the Bay Area. What advice do you give when people are thinking about how to be most impactful with, with their philanthropy? I should just say for the audience, in case you don't know, Rockefeller is America's first global philanthropy. We're 103 years old and um, have been at this a long time. So there are lots of lessons. And of course, John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, when they started, were that generation's new wealth, trying to do something different with their, with their idea of philanthropy. Um, I think the most important thing is to really remain nimble, to innovate, to pilot, and to be able to learn in real time. So there's an awful lot of hubris in philanthropy in terms of we know how to do it, you know, we know what we want to do. And we have really come to know that measuring and monitoring is critical to being successful in philanthropy and measuring and monitoring in real time. 
not evaluating afterwards when it's too late to make course corrections and change. Um, to take risks is also important. We are America's tax privilege risk capital. Um, and to use it that way it will make a philanthropist uh, more effective. And then to avoid the hubris of the not invented here, which I do see some of in the newer philanthropists. Uh, we do a lot of crowdsourcing of ideas. We do a lot of external scans of the environment. We have sensing institutions and people all over the world so that we can stay ahead of what the global trends are. And uh, I, I see some pretty strong perspectives coming out of the new philanthropists that they made all this money, they know what's right, and they know how to do it, and I think they need to protect against that. Judith, what do you hope happens as a result of people reading this book? Well, I hope by reading the book that we see people and institutions, cities, and societies really better prepared because they will gain a dividend in making those preparations, um, developing resilience characteristics are critical and it's a skill. It's not an innate capacity. So these are characteristics that can be developed and they have to do with aware, building in awareness and redundancy, integrated solutions, um, self-regulation, meaning the capacity to fail safely rather than catastrophically and then adaptability. So these are critical characteristics that I hope, those are the five characteristics that I hope we develop, we can develop as a result of reading the book. And then the book was also a way to really introduce the learning from all over the world because the examples really give such rich stories about what went wrong in places, what went right, whether they're businesses or, or cities. Um, whether it has to do with infrastructure or other elements. And then just a plug, we have uh, our centennial initiative, 100 Brazilian cities. Um, the Bay Area has three of our first 67, San Francisco, Oakland, and Berkeley. LA is, is one of the cities as well. And so there's a, we have a lot of energy and attention out here to um, the uh, capacity in this uh, region to really be a thought leader. You know, I, you said we're, so, you, as you introed this, you know, this is a matter for me, like bringing coals to Newcastle, because there's so much you have done already and so much that's been done right. What we're trying to do is widen the frame so that there isn't a discussion in one silo about infrastructure or earthquakes and in another silo around equity and inclusion, and in a third silo around housing and future-oriented development. Resilience is really a frame through which these are integrated, and governance is a key, and leadership is a fourth element of this. And when we talk about a resilient city, the outcomes are human well-being as well as social and economic resilience, in addition to physical and natural infrastructure resilience. And when they all work together, it's really pretty incredible. So that's the message. <laughs> On that, let's get some um, thoughts or questions. 
Each city gets three years. We're funding it for, well, yeah. So I guess I'm just sort of curious to hear your thoughts about how you factor financial resilience into the project and into this idea of ongoing resilience. So I just described a couple of the goods and services in describing a few of the companies or, or um, NGOs that are part of it. The platform actually has 44 now. Um, that are multiple hundreds of millions in pro bono goods and services. We will maintain the platform continuously. After the three years, we will maintain the network of chief resilience officers. But truthfully, we really feel we're certain that we will be so successful that after three years, the city will want to pick up. No, we will be. The chief resilience officer role will be so successful that a city will be will want to pick that up in the city's budget. And for us and my board, that's a measure of our own success. So we're trying to create a movement within each city that brings this to the fore and demonstrates pretty quickly the value. And if there really are dividends, and we are confident from all of our work that there, there are dividends, then the cities will realize the benefits up front in more job creation and greater social cohesion in a variety of things that will enable them to really justify and feel quite good about um, their uh, investment going forward beyond us. We've had 800 cities apply, so 800 cities around the world think, wow, that's pretty good, um, but we'll see. I mean, my comment from the peanut gallery is that the financial stresses associated with the other stresses are a big deal. But um, <laughs> the cost of a chief resiliency officer is, is not even pennies under the couch cushions. And I mean, when Louisiana did its plan for the, the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority, it was, they stopped counting after $150 billion in need. Then they just got into speculative projects that they weren't going to bother costing out. And, and, and so we're, we're just talking about um, as every coastal city on the earth has to retrofit itself or abandon areas that were developed, you know, the, the first wave of stuff, maybe not so expensive, but then it gets harder and harder and harder. So coming up with the money is a big deal. It's a conversation we have to all start. But this is, building resilience is a journey. No city in the world, we have Rotterdam in our network, and when they applied, we said, you know, you don't need us. You're the most resilient city in the world, and yet they're working still on things, and they've been at this. So um, we're not looking to say, here's the resources within the next three years that are going to solve all of these problems. Look how long San Francisco's been working on its earthquake resilience but we're building on the, that great capacity that has been developed here with these kinds of organizations to then broaden that lens to use the same kind of thinking. When you start thinking about communities through a resilience lens, using some of the same protective thinking, you're thinking about earthquakes, it really changes the conversation. 
about what you need to do and think in communities. Columbia. So Fajardo is amazing, and he was an architect. So he he did he thought in a design thinking sort of way, which is an underpinning to resilience thinking, um, in in a lot of ways. He not only intervened in those communities, he did it in the most extraordinary way. So those Medellin, of course, was known for years as the drug and crime capital of the world. And they tried all of the conventional ways to solve it, policing, military, USCIA, government support, you know, to try to break the drug trade because that's what was um, fundamentally, they thought, at the root of so much of their poverty and inequity. What Fajardo thought was that maybe their topography was the problem. If they flat valley where most of the affluence and all of the commerce exists, surrounded by very, very high and steep hills um, where all the poverty was in favelas, but differently. Like in Rio, the favelas are kind of integrated in pockets in the city, but these were all deeply disconnected. And they were both the, the operators of the low-level operators and the victims of the drug trade. And so they built a metro on the valley floor, and then they connected the metro to, by, um, to the hills with gondolas and escalators that they actually built into the terrain of the hills. And at every stop for these three or four communities who were the most disadvantaged and most disconnected, they built community schools and health clinics and after-school programs at each of the transportation stops. So they connected people by transit to more economic prosperity, but they used the whole thing in an integrated structural way to provide community services and to connect the communities. And in 10 years, crime dropped 91% in Medellin. Um, these communities have become incredibly cohesive with high levels of community trust. They've had mudslides, um, they've had other kinds of problems, but they bounce back very quickly now because they're so much more resilient, both at the community level um, and economically. So it's a great case study for um, ha one innovation around um, focusing on uh, social and economic resilience and all of the benefits that accrue. All right. I'm so appreciative of you taking time to come through here. And um, also, she took time out of her, her work running the foundation to write a book. That's kind of <laughs> shocking to me. We're in a moment in our history as a species where so many things we have taken for granted are changing. It is this kind of thinking that we are all 
trying to come to terms with. So thank you thank for doing you. this. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. That was Judith Roden, president of the Rockefeller Foundation, in conversation with Spur President Gabriel Metcalf about building resilient cities and her book, The Resilience Dividend. Their talk was recorded at the Spur Urban Center in San Francisco on Monday, May 7, 2015. We'd love to know what you think about this conversation and about the Live at Spur podcast. You can find us on Facebook. We're on Twitter at Spur underscore Urbanist. And there are other ways to get in touch at spur.org. That's also where you can find our event calendar to check out what's coming up near you. We've got events in San Francisco, San Jose, and in Oakland. If you like what you've heard, we hope you'll consider supporting our work by joining Spur. Head over to spur.org and click that big blue button that says Join Spur. I'm Brock Winstead. You've been listening to the Live at Spur podcast. We're Spur. We support ideas and action for a better city. Come join us at spur.org.